Today's episode of Hoops Adjacent is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options, and ETFs right from your phone. You can even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. And with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, for as little as $1. And that's with no commission fees or account minimums. So whether you're new to investing and ready to learn, or just looking for a better experience, stop waiting and join the 10 million Robinhood users. Listeners can get started with a free stock by going to hoopsadjacent.robinhood.com. That's hoopsadjacent, all lowercase, .robinhood.com. All investments involve risk. This is not investment advice, a recommendation, or a solicitation of any security. Other fees may apply. Visit rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations. Annual percentage yield on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. Robinhood Financial is not a bank. And welcome to another edition of Hoops Adjacent. I am David Aldridge here with, well, I'm in Indianapolis. It's hard to say that word. Um, uh, We're taping this on Wednesday. This is the day that Victor Oladipo is actually going to return after 14 months. I wanted to come and see it and write about it. So I'm in Indian Waz. You're in L.A. still? Yes, of course. I'm I'm still here in L.A. Of course, you know, the city is obviously in a stage of mourning um, all over the place. Uh, but yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Tell me, Waz, I wanted to, I wanted to pick your brain about, you know, what, what the city feels like, you know, in these four days since this, this horrible, just unspeakable cruelty has happened to all of these families that have been devastated by uh, this loss what what what's the i know what the mood is like that's not what i mean but how are people kind of dealing with their grief and how are they expressing it um just anecdotally it's you know everybody <laughs> if you're an la native is just just no way to put it like everybody is sad about this like profoundly sad um and it's so funny david because Ethan actually had me on his podcast last week to specifically talk about L.A. as it relates to the NBA and L.A. being sort of the fulcrum of everything. And I made this point to him that, you know, everybody's made this point is that the Lakers are the through line um, of this city. Uh, And Kobe, (laughs) you know, he's he's the favorite son, Um, more so than Shaq, more so than even Magic, because, you know, a lot of his stuff. Was, was was from the 80s. So it's like Kobe is the favorite son. He was, you know, he's he's the the he's everything to these people. Um and, and again, and you know, as I put it to Ethan, like LA is a disparate place, right? Like mm-hmm. Valley and Beverly Hills and Brentwood and Bel Air and East Side Los Angeles and you know, South Central and even Long Beach, the Compton, like there's not a through line there. Like right. these places are separate. These places don't have a lot of in common, except that they all call themselves Los Angeles County. But the one commonality is the Lakers, yeah. and the one commonality is Kobe. And you know, I'm I'm listening like everybody else to a lot of stuff. Um, I listen to Bomani because he's one of my favorite people. Mm-hmm. And he reminded me of something about how, you know, a lot of times we attach ourselves as an NBA fandom to individuals. And and it reminded me of something completely different, but it's in the same vein. Um, you know, we we look at everything in the NBA as like, in basketball, is just like family, like the basketball community. And I remember sitting with a friend of mine, um, my homie Deets, he's a, you know, he's a white guy my age. Um, from Queens, New York, and he actually happens to live out here. And he said something to me that, you know, that stuck with me. He said, you know, for me, it's one of those things where somebody just has to tell me they're a fan of NBA basketball, and it's kind of all I need to know about them. <laughs> That's exactly it's what, right. He's like, I already know everything I need to know about this person as far as can we talk, can we relate, and I 
automatically understood what he was trying to say. Yep. And we all understand what he was trying to say. And I think that's why, because we feel so attached to these people. We feel so connected to the players in the league that it feels like such a tragic loss. And and it's because of that. Like, I can't explain it. I, I mean, maybe there's that sense of community in football. I don't know. I don't feel as connected to football. But I know in basketball, I remember for the first time meeting um, Ryan Rossillo. And his whole thing at ESPN was he was a big college football guy. Is his bag, but his other bag was NBA basketball. And I found that so fascinating. I was like, you know what, Ryan? Like, you know, I'm a fan of your work. Like, I don't need to know anything about you, but like, you're an NBA guy, and that's all, that's good enough for me. Like, anybody can say, oh, Rosillo's a meathead. He's blah, 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 blah. I don't care. He's an NBA guy. And I think that's what is happening here with this Kobe thing. It's like, this deep sense of loss because of this connection we have to everybody involved in the basketball community. The intimacy of, of basketball, and this is something that other people before me have remarked upon, so it's nothing, it's not a new observation of mine, but it is certainly one if you, you understand the game. The, the intimacy of basketball starts and ends with the fact that you can see their faces. I always tell people this, you know, you can't see a football player's face. He's wearing a helmet. You can see a baseball player's face, but he's also wearing a helmet or, or a cap. Um, these players are, are dressed essentially in the t-shirt and shorts and they're going out there and playing. So you can see their faces. You can see their expressions. You can see when they're happy. You can see when they're angry. You can see when they're emotional, um, that, uh, provide that, lends to an intimacy that, that other sports simply don't have. Um, and then, until very recently, you could sit very close to the floor and watch an NBA game, you know, and, and see all of that writ large. You can't, you can't sit close to a football game. You know, <laughs> you're, not, you're not physically able to be close to a football game. Um, and it just makes a difference. It's just a total difference. And to your point earlier, the individuality that has always been a hallmark of the NBA, going back to the very beginning when it was George Mikan and the Lakers, it was not the Lakers, it was George Mikan and the Lakers. Um, you know, that's what this league has been built on is the, is the excellence of individuals at the top of their game. And, and Kobe was as good as anybody at the top of his game. You know, he is a certainly, you know, you can argue if he's top five or top 10, but he's in the discussion. We all understand that. Um, and his excellence, um, to your other point, um, continued the love affair that the city of Los Angeles has with the Lakers. Um, you know, I don't live in L.A. Um, I don't know if it's the Lakers or the Dodgers. They both have long, storied, successful histories. Um, I can just tell you that, to, anecdotally, to use your word, it certainly felt to me all the times, the hundreds of times I've been to Los Angeles over the last 30 years, that the Lakers were the team that that more people loved. You know, I don't know if it was that more people watched, but it was the team that more people loved. <laughs> And that's why I agree with you. I don't know if Kobe was the greatest Laker of all time. You know, you can argue it's Magic. You can argue it's Kareem. You can argue it's Will Chamberlain. But I'm, I'm pretty sure he was the most beloved. One of the things, how I know this is true, um, moving here, right? Um, and believe me, um, I, I, I've kind of self-identified as a LeBron guy. Um, because LeBron came to prominence as a high school player when I was in high school. And so I feel connected to him. Like, there's a connection to my own childhood that I no longer have with almost anything. And so LeBron reminds me of that. And I remember being captivated by LeBron, right? And to this day, I'm still watching LeBron. It's like, damn, how is he doing this stuff? You know, like, I'm still amazed by him. Like, the fir very first time ESPN, you know, ran that feature on him and the chosen one on Sports Illustrated and Shaq was going to his games. I was like... Shaq went to a high school game. Like, <laughs> you know, like, like he's the way he was able to capture my imagination at 14 years old, right? And he's still doing it, right, in certain ways. So I was a LeBron guy. And, you know, there was this obvious Kobe versus LeBron thing throughout the years, whatever. We don't need to relitigate that. But I remember moving to Los Angeles 
and meeting <laughs> meeting Laker fans for like real Laker fans for the first time and kind of explain it to them like you know I wasn't a Kobe guy like I you know like he's obviously one of the great players but like you know I feel like there's people more captivating more this and that and just the incredulous looks I would get people were just like they were dumbfounded by the idea that somebody was not entranced by Kobe like they couldn't even fathom that that could be possible. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, he his his fans stand for him now. <laughs> oh my goodness, the the love that this guy engendered. Like I'm talking about, people were just like like they were hearing something. I don't know. It's like the first time somebody hears like Santa Claus isn't real. It's like they're like, wait, what? Like double take. Like what? You don't think Kobe is a god? I'm like, I mean, yeah, he's a great player, but like these people, like, and it's to a man, Los Angeles Lakers fans out here, they're just like, you've got to be kidding me. It's Kobe. What? <laughs> yeah, this has been. I was, I was surprised, was how emotional I was Sunday. I really was surprised. Not, I shouldn't say surprised. I was. It was, it was not what I expected. I would, how I would react um but i think it was just a it was i was at the gym actually and i had just finished watching the get I was, I was watching the maryland indiana basketball game and i was on the treadmill and the game the game was back and forth and maryland won at the last minute and i was thinking to myself as i was running i was like wow that's a really good win for maryland good for them you know and literally 30 seconds later they come out of commercial and I don't have the sound in my headphones. So I'm listening to music, but you see on the screen, they have Kobe Bryant, you know, 1978 to 2020. And you're going, what? No, what do you No, <laughs> You know, that can't be what, what, <laughs> you know? And so I of course got off the treadmill immediately and went to my phone and, and saw what was being reported and just sitting there in the gym and the, in the, in the locker room, I just started sobbing. I'm not crying. I mean, sobbing in, and and I just couldn't believe it. And I just couldn't, you know, I, it just came out of me. And again, as I tell people, you know, it's not that Kobe and I were, were, were close on any particular level. I felt much more attached to Michael Jordan, you know, and part of that's age. I understand it. Um, but, um, I just couldn't, you know, it's just the, the, the cruelty of not, not just him dying, but his daughter dying with him and those other poor kids dying and their parents dying with them. It's just, it just seems so monumentally cruel, you know? And I just, I was, I was just racked for 15 minutes. I couldn't stop sobbing. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely broke down a couple of times in my house, just, you know, trying to, <laughs> And a lot of it is not even about just Kobe. It's just like when you when you think about the totality of it, it's just like his family, uh, the people of this city, um, just like what it must have been like to be on that damn bird while it's cr and like all of these things just sort of hit me at once. Like, this is awful. You know, <laughs> like this is just awful. Um, and you know, it's one of those things, like it's an accident, right? It's not like somebody went out and killed Kobe, like John Lennon or, you know, or even I was sitting on my couch on a Sunday around the same time last year, even though it was, no, I think it was March when Nipsey passed, but it was like, it was so eerie, the similarities. Like I was sitting on my couch on a Sunday, except on that day when Nip passed, the Clippers had a game. So I was going to the Staples Center that day and um i just remember thinking this cannot be true and it was so eerie it was like sunday i don't know sundays have just a weird feeling as a day i don't know why like there's this thing about sundays and like i just remember the feeling of just another sunday afternoon and just looking at my phone like no way you know but whereas with that it was like there's a lot of anger when somebody's life gets taken whereas with kobe it's just you just have no answers. This is an accident. This is an accident. Like, what do you even say about that? What do you do? Like, this, these things happen. You know, you just never think that it's going to be like this. I don't know. It's so, 
I still can't, I can't understand it. I think my brain is too small to really have processed all of this by now. I, I like, I'm still looking at the 78 to 2020 thing and just being like, no way. Like I I'm still just seeing Kobe's name is just still weird. Like reading his name because he has such a strange name, you know, like that's another thing. Like so much about Kobe is like, just seared into your brain in a certain way. It's just, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm at a loss still. It, we, I think we all are, you know, and it's just, it's, a, it's because first of all, he's still young. 41's young to me. I'm old. I'm 55, 54, but, but you know, 41 is young. That's a young man. You know, that's not a, that's not an elderly man. That's a young man, you know? Um, and, and, you know, again, that there were three young girls that just wanted to play basketball. I mean, it just, it just, it just shatters me. It shatters my heart, you know, that I, and I wrote about this, uh, for the athletic this week, just the thing that's, that's so dispiriting to me is that it was his very success. It was the, it was his very, you know, place in the right. firmament of basketball that, created the financial wherewithal that he could take a helicopter to take a chopper, (laughs) you know what I mean? Instead of just being on the four or five and cussing at the traffic, like everybody else does, you know, (laughs) like that just, it just shatters me. That's just so, that's so unfair. You know, (laughs) like you're, when you're a parent, you want to do whatever you can for your children. You don't even think about it. You know, it's just like, well, this make my child's life, one iota easier. I'll do it. I don't even think, you know, I don't care what it costs, you know? And so that just, that I know that when you're a parent, I know what he was thinking. This is easier for my daughter, you know, and it makes it really hard for me to, for me to put my arms around this thing because that's what you do for your kids. And you just do it. You don't think about it. You don't, you just do it, and it makes it makes me feel so sad because he was he was doing this in service of his kids and his kids' friends. You do you do these things for your friend for your kids' friends. You put them all in your car, and you take them wherever they need to go, and you take them to their games, and you take them to their events because that's what we all do for our kids, <laughs> and that's what he was doing for his daughter. And it just, it just makes me so sad, Was It makes me so sad that, that that's what he was trying to do. And that's what those other parents were trying to do for their daughters. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult to reconcile that in my mind because he was just being a dad, you know, and that makes that really hurts me. That hurts me. Cause I'm a dad too. Dave, man, you okay, brother? I'm good, man. I just, you just, man, it's just when you have kids, man, everything changes. Your life changes. You don't care about yourself anymore. You know, <laughs> you really don't. Yeah. It's just a tragedy. It's just tragic. I, I, it's just there's too much to even consider. So I'm going to, try to have a stiff drink between the time we stop doing this segment and the next, because we're going to bring Jay Adande in, who is now uh, more, you know, still a great journalist and still is on ESPN occasionally, but now is involved in academia. He is the director of the, well, I'll get his official title. He runs a sports journalism program in Northwestern. I'll just put it that way. I'll get his official title in a minute and uh, we'll be right back. Let's bring D.A. into the conversation here. Welcome to Super Comma is Make America what it ought to be. Turned it on and I heard Shaq with the barbs is like the most in his braggadocio. I was transported right back into it. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I think I rap better than Shaq. With David, David Aldridge. Aldridge. Oh, he's totally playing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Come on. We're friends, aren't we? And then he yeah. cut their lungs out and gave everybody on TV. <laughs> was not your friend so the chicago and detroit stuff that was real that was real i mean god forbid we don't have scholarship monies and can't pay for the charters for the water polo (laughs) in iowa welcome to hoop five four we have ignition and welcome to another 
another edition of Oops and Jason. I am David Holt. We should have had you on before. <laughs> before talking about this, my friend Jay Adande. What is your official title at Northwestern? Director of Sports Journalism. Running. You're running things over there. Just say it. <laughs> <laughs> You're the man over there. It's all right. <laughs> but of course, a lot of people, and I yeah. have a staff of zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how it usually rolls in academia, right? <laughs> but uh, Jay, obviously, uh, we're having him on because he was uh, not only a columnist uh, at ESPN, he was a columnist at the LA Times, uh, was there for, I don't know if you were there for all of, of Kobe's career, but most of it, you know, I'm sure. 19 of the 20 years. Is that right? Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you know, you know him better than I do. Certainly. I think there's a few people, you know, you're one of them, maybe Brad Turner and, and Howard Beck and a couple of people that, um, that really were involved in the daily kind of, uh, coverage of him, good and bad, as you know. Um, and I would differentiate, not necessarily know better, but mm. interacted with more. Okay, so that, that's fair. That perhaps gives me more data entry points. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I hear you. I hear you. I think one of the lessons that we were reminded of many times with Kobe is we we didn't really know him. Yeah. We didn't what to expect or what would come next? Uh, I think we we came to see his his flair for the dramatic and his determination. Right. Those are all qualities that were evident to everybody. But what was the inner workings of his mind? I don't know if anyone ever was able to delve that far into him. Yeah, yeah. I think complicated is <laughs> is damning with faint praise. You know, I mean, um, you know, he was a, I think, elite in in you know all things. He tried to be elite in all things, and um, you know, and certainly. Like you said, there were things and we can we'll certainly talk about some of them um, that, you know, you just you didn't see coming and you can't explain in any kind of rational way. So um, I just I guess I would just start with you, Jay, with, um, you know, he was embarked in this kind of obviously post playing phase, but it was very different from most players. I mean, most ex-players try to stay attached to the game directly, you know, either through coaching or through management or through ownership. Um, they, they really like to stay attached. And he really kind of went off in a totally different direction. And I guess from you, I, w I would, I would ask, do you think that's it? That was that in character for, for him in terms of trying to be curious about the world and seek new adventures? I think so. And could you picture him being a coach of, of NBA players? You know, I know he, he, he coached his, his daughter's teams, but it was really difficult to imagine him coaching NBA players. Um, he didn't mind tutoring them, but uh, coaching them, I think, would be another story. You know, the fact that his guy, Rob Palenka, his former agent, was the president of the Lakers. So, you know, you can say he could wield influence indirectly that way, right? You know, I'm sure if he had some suggestions or ideas, he could always call up little Rob. And, and you know, so I, I think he felt very connected to the franchise in that regard. So there was no need to actually physically be in the office when, when he was very well represented in the office through Rob Palenka's presence. So it, it made for a, a smoother transition than we were, were typical of most players, right? Especially the great players. He just seems to be adapting to post post basketball life a lot easier. I wonder about his um, his um, real real connection, um, as you mentioned, in terms of mentoring younger players. Certainly through his academy, I do wonder how much of that was impacted by seeing his daughter really become capable as a basketball player. It wasn't just something she was doing for a lark, you know, when it wasn't something she was just doing to kind of buy the time when she became the, uh, she started to gain the real love for the game that, that he gained for it. And I just wonder if that, you know, that had to impact him on so many different levels, you know? And really one of the sad parts is that 
I was thinking if she were still with us, we could see him live on through her. We could watch her play basketball and see some of his moves, see her utilize some of the things that he taught her and have a sense of him continuing on through her. But now that she's gone as well, we don't even have that. Um, you know, every, every time you start, the more you think about it, the, just the more tragic it gets. And that, that was one of the aspects. It, it'll be interesting to see which players, th- there's a whole generation out there that came up watching him. And even if they've never had a conversation with him, he's influenced the way that they play. Maybe the shoes that they wear, if they wear his shoes, maybe their jersey choice. There's so much impact that he had on this league. And it's harder for people, David, if you're in my age, to to reconcile or grasp the fact that someone other than Michael Jordan could be so influential. But yeah, yeah, he had sure. much influence on this generation than Michael Jordan ever did. Absolutely. No, he was their Jordan, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Exactly what Paul George said the night Kobe announced his retirement. Yeah. And and he was, you know, and I think he even, well, I, shouldn't, I don't know if transcend is the word, but he seemed, I think, to there seemed to be a deeper, kind of more granular um, love for him amongst these new players, younger players, I guess I should say, more accurately. I don't know if that's because of social media and the impact that that has or not, but um, with Michael, there was certainly – reverence and respect and awe, but it was almost as if he wasn't a whole, real person, you know? Um, he was further removed from them and was more likely to cast his versions. I need to go back and look at the scores that Kobe gave out when he was judging the dunk contest in the 2007 All-Star Weekend in Las Vegas. Kobe, Michael, I want to say Dominique, maybe I, I, I can't I remember the Doc, the wasn't Doc one of the judges Doc, too? Doc, I'm sure Doc was. Yeah. Like he, like he judged a lot. Right. But, uh, you, you know, you had these past winners of the dunk contest were judging, and Michael was hating. His scores were so <laughs> low. Every time Michael was checking in with the low score, you know, the, the 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 Soviet judge or the East German judge, as we used to joke in the in the Olympic figure skating, that was Michael man coming in with these low scores. Like he was not impressed by these youngsters and and these dunks that they were trying to put on, and Kobe wasn't like that. So just. Just the fact that he was less likely to be judgmental of them, at least their basketball play, um, their style, you know, in the recent years with the, the fashion, NBA fashion and the turning the, the entry into the arenas into a, a fashion runway. Kobe disapproved of that. I remember one of his lines was, you know, I'm, I'm just not a fan of all this stuff, skinny jeans and all that. No, mm-hmm. that's, that's not me. Right. So he might have disapproved of their fashion choice. Kobe was still a, a dress-up kind of guy, but uh, he, he did encourage and support the way that they played. Yeah, and, you know, it's something that I, I don't think that I was conscious of while he was alive, but it seems like this was a big interest of his as far as the mentorship of the younger guys, right? Like, even as, as um, recent as September, he held that invite-only um camp where he worked guys out on strength training, skills training. Kawhi Leonard came out, Paul George came out, Kyrie Irving came out, amongst others. You know, I remember reading it and it felt like just some kind of blurb at the time, like, oh, okay, Kobe's holding a workout. It's kind of, you know, that's part and parcel of Kobe and who he is, right? Like, I'm a basketball guru. Like, it it only makes sense that he would be doing that. But it seems like in the days after the tragedy, um, it's come out more and more acutely that Kobe was really about this mentorship stuff and he was really about like making sure that the people that were carrying the game forward were doing it in the right way. Like, did you have that sense, J.A.? Because like, I, I I feel like I didn't. I knew a lot of people looked up to Kobe, but I didn't realize that he was actually going out and mentoring these people. You were hearing about it and, you know, it started with guys who were on the Lakers obviously. And then it did spread out guys like Jason Tatum talking about how much Kobe helped them and advised them. And that's really a recent development. It wasn't like that earlier. And one of the ways that Kobe and Shaq differed and were, were very different entities when they were playing together was that Shaq was known as the guy around the league. who was more the big brother who would take you in, show you around, tell you about the ins and outs of the leagues and, and guys on other teams and, even guys on the Lakers didn't have that same relationship with Kobe. 
at that point. And I'm wondering if it was after the Achilles tear or, you know, at what point that Kobe did start to embrace that role. And, and I think it was as he felt less competitive with the other players, as he started to realize that they were passing him by, you know, I, I look at the 2012 Olympics as a demarcation point where I think that's when it became apparent to him that it was no longer his league, that it belonged to the likes of LeBron and, and Kevin Durant, and that those were going to be the guys taking it from there and, and the guys of the moment as well. And so I think he did come to that realization. And I think that enabled him to be more giving and, and to, give away some of his secrets because prior to that, he didn't want anyone having any type of insight into his game or his mindset or anything like that, because he wanted to keep it all to himself so he could beat all those other guys and win championships. And once the prospect of winning championships was on the table, I think he was a lot more receptive to teaching others. Well, Jay, I'm glad you said that because I remember years ago reading a report that he worked out with Westbrook over one summer and he told Westbrook, there's no chance in hell Kevin Durant should win another scoring title. <laughs> he basically put that in Westbrook's head like as if that would be some kind of detriment to Westbrook and what he was trying to achieve if KD uh, won another scoring title. And I think, and and how it was framed in the report, it was Kobe trying to sabotage the, the Thunder chemistry dynamic and just on some, you know. <laughs> it was interesting. So, remember, they beat the Thunder, the Thunder's first playoff appearance. The Lakers beat them, like, just kind of barely escaped. It almost got sent back to L.A., I think. It was um, like the, the closest 4-1-4-2 series in history. Yeah. Yep. You know, and it, it gets won on, like, a putback by Pau Gasol. Mm. And so that was 20, what, 2010? 2010, I think, right? That was the Lakers won. They won the second one, right? I think they beat the Celtics that year, right? Yeah. I think we have that right. And and then, yeah, I think 2012, they lose to the Thunder. Yeah, they they lost to the Thunder. So by then, you know, they they were more mature. The Thunder had been to the conference finals. And so I guess 2012, they beat the Lakers and, and it, it really didn't feel like the Lakers had much of a shot against, you know, like they, the Thunder were clearly the superior team at that point. Right. And that was Phil's last year, right? If I, do I have that I mean, correct? That was, was Phil's last year. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Yeah. And to Waz's point though, I was curious, like how did Kobe's mind work? <laughs> um, this, this is dangerous territory. <laughs> I'll tell you what resonated with him were longevity and, you know, the, the notion that he'd been around. I, I remember when I finally pitched that to him and, and framed things in terms of longevity, he really enjoyed that. Uh, and, and, and he asked me how his mind worked. The, the thing is, by being around so long, I, I saw the different permutations of him where he, he did come in trying to do everything like Michael Jordan emulate him watching some of those old clips where just the way he talked, you know, wasn't his own cadence. <laughs> it was, it was yep. expected cadence. And so, you know, I, I talk as a journalism instructor trying to teach students to find their voice and Kobe had to find his voice examples. So just the development of being his own person and coming into his own right. And that even was reflected in, the way he started talking and how his his speech and his speech pattern changed. So, you know, his mind realizing that, okay, I'm no longer trying to do this. I am now um, set and focused in my ways, and, and now I can adopt my own and become my own person. Early on, he was... He was, was Simba, just can't wait to be king. And one of the things that caused the early friction was that Shaq tried to play the big brother role. I think Jerry West wanted Shaq to be the big brother to Kobe's little brother. Kobe didn't want to be the little brother. You know, he spent his whole life being a little brother. He had two older sisters, and he was a little brother to them. And now he was, you know, in his mind, a grown man um, playing in the NBA. And he didn't want to be a big brother. He, he wanted to be an adult. He, he didn't want to come off the bench. He didn't want to wait. And Del Harris made him come off the bench, even though Jerry West and, or I'm sorry, Jerry Buss, the team owner and the Laker fans all wanted more Kobe and, and Del Harris wanted him to wait. 
I, I wrote about this in the 2008 finals with the Celtics. The notion of Kevin Garnett and Kobe Bryant both started their careers coming off the bench. And because at the time, the conventional wisdom was that high school players needed to be brought along slowly, right? You needed to indoctrinate them in the ways of the league, and they weren't ready for this yet. This was big bets. And it was a much older league at that point, if you think about it, right? It's the, the dream teamers were still very much the dominant guys in the league. If you look at Kobe's early years in the league, the finals were Michael Jordan against Carl Malone and John Stockton and Patrick Ewing still around, all those guys. It was their league, you know, mid-30s, up late-30s. That's who ran the league, and, and it wasn't a place for teenagers. But, yeah, so he had to... He was asked to be patient, and that's one quality that he's never had. Well, Jay, I want I want to. So, were you around in 1998 when he when he made that All Star team as a bench player? And it's hard for people to fathom now, but like, you know, like it's just his second season in the league, and he's not starting for the Lakers. And by the way, he's like he was so popular, right? Like from the very beginning, and I tell people this: like Kobe captured people's imaginations, right? And um, and I think that's what kind of fascinated me about Kobe as a young person. Like, shoot, in 98, I was only 11 years old. But I was just like, this guy, and Eddie Jones was a really good player, right? It's not like some schlub is starting in front of Kobe. It's like, no, this guy's like a, a damn good NBA player playing ahead of Kobe. But he was so magnetic that he captured everybody's imagination. And I just think about you know, what it's like to be a child celebrity, essentially, right? Like, this guy's growing up with this ridiculous spotlight and just this ridiculous attention and, like, how that informs the person that he becomes. Like, what do you remember about 98, 99 Kobe? You know, like... That version was much less guarded, much more open. It's funny. In some ways, it's like the, the, the version that we saw at the end. But that version was beloved. He was a novelty, right? The teenagers in the league. So Kevin Garnett was that first wave in 95. Kobe Bryant is the second. You know, we had a, what, a full decade of it until 2004, right? So 95 through 2004, I think, right? 05 was the last year. Okay. High schooler. And so, we, you know, we basically had a decade. So Kobe's the second one in um, after Garnett. And there's no way he would have been drafted 13th if, we'd seen what we'd seen then. Remember, we don't have a high school guy go number one until Kwame Brown much later. There was this fear of the unknown. And, and so he was somewhat of a novelty. And, you know, he could jump out of the gym at that point. So he's this high-flying guy, you know, not afraid to try a 360 dunk in the middle of a game. And you, you, you just wait to see what he would do next, right? He'd come in. There's this great picture by the, the Hall of Fame photographer, Andrew Bernstein. And it's Kobe just ahead of the whole pack. He's got, feels like the whole, that side of the court to himself. And he's going in for a reverse dunk. You, I'm sure you've seen this picture back at the forum. He's going in for a reverse dunk, looking over his head. And the funny thing is, so in the background, though, Nick Van Nexel is jogging back down court because they know they got this bucket, right? But he, he turns around and he's looking back to see what Kobe would do. And it, it felt like everyone was like that. What is this kid going to do? Is he going to cross you up? Is he going to dunk on you? What is this young, exciting kid going to do? And so, yeah, he goes to the All-Star game because he's voted in by the fans because he's so popular. He's he's not the villain that he was, say, in the early and mid-2000s. Yeah, and people forget how flashy Kobe was. And I, and I want to make sure to bring that up all the time. It's like his game became very substance-based, right? It's like, all right, my dribbles are for a reason. My, this jump shot I'm taking is for a reason. And he made hard shots. I think... That was about as flashy as it got for later stage Kobe. But in the beginning, like you just mentioned, J.A., he was jumping out of the gym. He was crossing the hell out of people. He was just like, he was kind of street ball. He was like a park player. And the thing that's interesting, too, is that it took him longer than normal. And it wasn't like a slower development process. So the magic age in the NBA is 27. Go back and look at all the great players and the age 27 year is when it all clicks in and they, they take off to another level. Same with Kobe. You know, it's funny to think, you know, this version we're talking about, and it was another 10 years or so before he'd win the MVP. And that seems like such a long time to wait, but it's because he came in at age 18 and it took him 10 years, you know, it took him that long to get to age 27. 
So those guys, the Garnets and the Kobe's, it took them longer to get to that magical age 27. Because I, I was thinking about it, I was like, God, that was a long time before he, you know, got to the MVP level. And it's because he was so young and it, it takes a while. And so he had a longer wait to age 27 than the guys we were used to, Magic and Michael and the guys we've grown accustomed to seeing. Kobe's path to age 27 just took longer because he came in the league at a younger age. But but once he got there, you know, so that version and that 26, 27 could still fly and jump over you, but was starting to get more crafty. And then as he closes in around 30, then it becomes like the older Michael Jordan, the fadeaways and the footwork. And watching the, the replay of his final game the other day on ESPN, just seeing that what he, what he really became was the guy, it, it was just fun seeing that all over again, how he would go to his spots and knew it was coming and he knew exactly where he was going and there was nothing to do about it. But you know he was going to take three dribbles and go to the spot on the baseline and rise up. And Brandon Roy once described it great because uh, Kobe hit a game when he shot over him. He says, you know where he's going, you know what he's going to do and still the ball's in the air and you're just like, no! <laughs> <laughs> and watching him in his last game, you're still thinking, okay, I know where he's going to go. And he's still taking those three dribbles and going to that same spot. And that's what his game became about. Knowing his spots, knowing how to get to his spots, and there was really nothing that anyone could do to deter him. Right, right. Well, he became, like you said, like like Jordan at the end, how a craftsman, you know, a real craftsman of the of the floor and understanding angles and understanding, you know, leverage and all of those things that enabled him to uh, to be so effective later in his career. Um, I, I want to make sure we get to this because I know you don't have, you know, tons of time. Um, we, we have to discuss Eagle. We have to discuss that segment of his life. And, and I, it's funny. I wrote about that as part of what I wrote about Kobe and, you know, half of the people that commented said, you know, we're really thankful that you included that. And of course, half of the people thought I didn't go far enough and I should have condemned him and I should have, you know, I should have just destroyed him. Um, I tried to just play it down the middle because that's what I think we're supposed to do in things like that. And, you know, and not put our thumbs on the scale. But also because, remember, the justice, our legal system never rendered a verdict. Who are we to render a verdict and to hold him in judgment? Because we never know. We never got a definitive outcome on that innocent guilty because the charges were dropped before it went to to trial yeah, right so that's true that, that, that's a big part of it is that you know we can't judge him as as someone who committed this offense it was someone who was accused of doing this so that changes the discussion It'd be one thing if he were a convicted rapist you know discussions of mike tyson will be really interesting when it's time to summarize his life because a convicted rapist who went to prison. Kobe Bryant was accused of sexual assault, and that's a big difference. And and I think that, in some ways, uh, re reduces the conversation because we, we don't know for sure. An another point I'd like to make is that, um, you know, the, the reason it didn't go to trial primarily was because the victim stopped cooperating with the police, as I'm Sure, because she was in negotiations for a settlement with her civil suit with Kobe Bryant. She settled the civil suit. Kobe issued an apology slash explanation um, in which he, uh, I'd say, I'd say an acknowledgement even, right? In which he, yeah, yeah, in which he acknowledged that he could understand how she could perceive, she could perceive it that she did not give consent. It, it really is an extraordinary admission. But it's still not a mission of, of guilt. It's an acknowledgement that she had a different perception of it than he did. Right. And I, so, I hear, yeah. Right. Well, well, just my conclusion is that maybe, and we don't know for sure, but it could very well be that the case was resolved to her satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, for, for us to sit here and to continue on, if she feels that justice or, or, or she got what she wanted from him, both financially and his public statements, you know, that then 
then how do we continue to to reckon? You know, I, I just don't know if it's still up for relitigating if, and I say if, the person at the center of it feels that it was resolved to her satisfaction. And I don't, I, I don't know if it's 100% sure that it was, but it just seems indicative to me, you know, if you add up what was happening, that this was a satisfying resolution. That, would it undo the way she felt? No. But if she felt that he had satisfied what she wanted, if she felt she had been wronged, and he had taken the measures to address those wrongs to her satisfaction, then how do we continue to litigate this? Right. Well, here's the pushback that, that yeah. I think is fair pushback, is, is the notion that the reason why the victim decided to settle was because she had been dragged through the mud by Kobe's legal team. You know, and and numerous people online. You know, it's kind of early in the online era where where she could be attacked online, right? Yeah. And his attorney mentioned her by name several times to get her name out there. When you knew she, nobody was supposed to mention her name, and there were questions about her past sexual history, is that that had anything to do with what happened that night? You know, so it is fair, I think, to while while you're right, legally, he was convicted of nothing because there was no trial. Um, it is fair to to ask if, in retrospect, you know, that was, you know, how much damage was done to that woman in pursuit of getting the charges reduced or dropped or getting a settlement in the civil case so that he could cons- – and having her sign a non-disclosure agreement so that she can never talk about what happened um, and he can kind of just go on with his life. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and we've, we've seen in, in the Harvey Weinstein case and reporting sort of the evils of non-disclosure agreements, right, and, and the, the unfairness of them in a lot of ways. But I think one thing we've also seen recently is that they're non-binding in, in a lot of ways. You know, it, it's, it's an agreement, but, like, there's nothing that forces you into silence if you so choose. And, and we've seen women— in Weinstein cases and in, in some other cases, Fox News, for example, I think find ways around the nondisclosure agreements. So again, I'm, I'm not saying she was satisfied, but, I, but I'm saying I think we have to take that into account. Right. Uh, another thing I want to say is that you know, there's been accusations that, oh, we just kind of blew it over and, and, and glossed over. And I felt like it was discussed when it went appropriate. I, I went back and looked at a J.R. Moringer story for GQ on Kobe mm-hmm. and 2010. Kobe was 31 years old at the time, so it was sort of an assessment of him at that age. And it, it, there was a lot of glorification of him, and I think a lot of it was about how he fought through so many injuries and, and overcome this and that. And But there was a, there was a segment on Colorado, and, yeah. and neither, neither the accuser nor Kobe spoke on it. And that, that's kind of what's reduced the conversation, too, right? We never had the, the the sit down, the explanation of it from his side. Yeah. Uh, but and but it was mentioned in this story, you know, and, and I think there was an understanding that particularly at that point, it would be incomplete to talk about it. And then I look back at my coverage from 2009 when he won his first post-sack champion. And to me, that story was about the climb back to the top, you know, from this in many ways self-created hole that, that he was in, but he had ascended back to the top. But in the course of, but you can't say he's back on the top without saying how he got to the bottom, and so, so there was there was there was a cursory mention, you know, I just everything from you know for play in the finals and and um, you know the Kobe Shaq Phil all that, and you know I did mention the sexual assault allegations, you know from 2003, and you know I didn't focus on them, but I mentioned them, mm-hmm. and in the in the middle of a game story. You know, because it was appropriate at that point to, you know, we're looking at what this meant. At that point, it was appropriate. When he won the next year in, in 2010, um, at that point, it was about a repeat championship. It was about avenging his defeat in 2008 to the Celtics. So at that point, the allegations, the charges, I don't think were relevant to the story. I, I thought they were very much relevant in, in 2009, and I wrote about them. And so when appropriate, I think, not just me, I, I, I think the media, we, we probably could have done more, but I think there's a lot of belief that the media just kind of whitewashed it away 
And I felt like I, I, I want to defend the media, the sports media, a little bit and say that it was mentioned when appropriate. I just want to say two things about this particular subject because I think it's important. Um, first of all, I think we need to mention it and mention it by name because people who aren't specifically Kobe's alleged victim, but just victims in general, um, they're acutely aware of the coverage. Meaning when people are covering Kobe and his life and they say the Colorado thing and they don't say, yo, that time in Eagle, Colorado, Kobe was um, Kobe was accused of sexual assault. Um, that's a brush off. Right. And that that can make those people feel like, well, shit, I guess it doesn't matter what happened or might have happened to that woman. And so I think it's important that we bring it up. But at the same time. I don't think it's hard to hold two thoughts at the same time, right? It's not hard to understand that Kobe, by his own admission, might have done something really bad to that woman, by in his own words, but still loved his daughter and still was a big champion of the WNBA and still on and on and on and on and on. Like, that makes him a three-dimensional person. That makes him a human being. I don't think it's complicated, that Kobe might have fucked up when he was 24 years old on, on a given night with um, a young woman. I don't think that complicates his story. I think that makes him a human being. Everybody's not going to be Mother Teresa, and that's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with sort of um, establishing that. And I think there are those people who feel like you're accusing Kobe of being Hitler when you bring up what happened in Colorado. I think that's nonsense, right? I think if you love Kobe, you understand that, man, he's gone through a lot of things in his life. And maybe some people feel like we didn't ever come to a full accounting of what went down in Colorado because it was just like it was settled out of court and sort of never talked about again. But I don't think it's out of bounds to bring it up. And I think it's important to bring it up. I would I would say this uh, to Jay's point. I do think, and, and I don't know, I have, I've read as much as I've, as I can the last four days about from different perspectives, because I want to hear them. I've, I have found very few people who have been dismissive of Colorado. I found, I cannot find someone who said the Colorado thing as if they were just trying to get it in and get out of it as soon as possible. I think people have been to varying degrees. Maybe some have been less detailed than others, but I think most sports writers when when mentioning that and all of them haven't i'm not going to say they all have but the ones who have mentioned it have tried to be i think um as as detailed as possible with it the the question is do you to jay's point do you then pass judgment do you render judgment you know based on the facts that we know of the case and and what happened to that woman is it is it suitable to pass judgment and that What's is what judgment supposed to be besides the guy. That's what I mean. Right? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like I'm I like this idea that uh, I mean, even in I don't know, this sort of a puritanical way that we talk about sex in this country. And I think that's what leads to a lot of these these mess ups, these these awful situations in a way that we can't even touch it. It's like dude, I have to either condemn Kobe or I'm deifying him. I don't. I don't understand why those have to like why those things have to be so binary. I guess is what I'm saying, and I would like for people to try to think of these things in a more nuanced fashion than he's either a criminal or he's a god. I, like I, it, that seems so silly to me and juvenile, David. I don't know. Like that's just where I'm at with it because I see. I mean, and I'm in touch with the discourse online in person, and you know, like. I don't, uh, and it feels like the condemnation of the media is this idea of like, you're either calling him a god or you're doing what that lady from the Washington Post did. And I'm like, eh, it, it's not really that. Well, well Waz, I think time and place are very important. So yeah. I think at the moment in you know, the immediate aftermath of the crash, he is, you know, a, a, a one of the all-time great basketball players, a father and a husband has died along with his daughter, along with seven other people. And, you know, it, it, in that immediacy, that that is the story, right? And then, you know, why is it news? Kobe Bryant, five-time NBA champion, et cetera, has died. That's, that's the news flash, right? 
and then um, you know details of how and that's that becomes important and and those elements and then as a little more time progresses and now we're starting to take a look back at the totality of the person in his career and okay now we can discuss the good and the bad of him and um, place is very important too like Twitter it, Twitter forces you to be either or and not not have nuance and not have it's not yes and yeah exactly Twitter is this or that and so Twitter is not the place to say great guy infallible guy no because he isn't Twitter is not the place to say you know villain sexual assaulter no because it's not that simple either and so a place like a podcast or a news story or you know a video discussion any of those places you can have that conversation so i think the problem is people were judging what people were saying on twitter and i think it was too extreme but twitter isn't the place to have a conversation that's one of the reasons like when david stern passed and when kobe passed like there's not much i can say in a tweet so i've, I've been pictures I've, i posted just an array of photos for example that i took from his last night when he was signing the number 24 on the court at staples center before he left and that that was my initial just thought to share on Kobe Bryant. Like, here's some, some memories I have of him. Here's a moment that you might not have seen of Kobe that, that I was lucky enough. There were about 20 of us in the building at that point still um, when he came out and, and signed the court. And so that, that's my, you know, just, just right. And, and when somebody dies, the first thing is images, right? You, you think back of images and moments and, you know, the, the moments that matter to you, maybe it's the 81 point game or, you know, maybe for guys like David and myself, personal interactions that we had with him, you know, that's the initial thing. And then as it continues and as we have appropriate places that aren't just initial reactions like Twitter is, now we can discuss all of the aspects that made him who he is and the fascinating, complex story, uh, intriguing story that was Kobe Bryant. So let's let's get you out on this, Jay. Um as you, you know, over the past four days, as you reconcile, you know, grief with memory, with, with love, with uh, anger, all of the things that we're all kind of dealing with, right? Um, where, how do you kind of, how would you sum up this man's life to people that only saw him two-dimensionally, that only saw him on television? How would you sum up who he was and what his impact was? The, the easiest summary I've been able to use and the, the one I've been working with is that he produced great content that gave you material. You know, if you were his fan or if you hated him, he gave you plenty of material to work with either way. Yeah. Compelling content. And, you know, the, the reason this resonates so much is that you couldn't just idly say, oh, yeah, Kobe Bryant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> heard of him yeah you know you you felt some way about him yeah love hate you you had he elicited passion and and i i've talked about this this week but you know ultimately i i had to thank him you know for for all of our ups and downs that that we had um you know we we really ultimately had a great working relationship but ultimately i was appreciative of the fact that he gave me so much great content to work with as a columnist in Los Angeles for the entire, you know, for 19 of his 20 years. And for my 20 years in Los Angeles, he was there. And he gave me so much material to work with. And so, you know, that's how I look at it. I can't, I can't speak to the, you know, we, we've seen him as a father and, and I can't, you know, that that's for him. That That's honestly, that's for his family to discuss. You know, we've seen outward things. You know, I can't evaluate him as a father. It, it was great to see those so many of those images of him with his daughters, particularly with Gigi. Um, but I can't evaluate him as a father. But I can tell you that he produced great content. That's the one thing I can say with absolute certainty and kind of the through line throughout his career. We talked about the multiple stages he went through at every stage. He remains compelling, even at the end. Think about how how remarkable it was that he kind of stayed at the forefront of the league in the latter years when he wasn't doing that much. Uh, 2011, no, not 2011, uh, All-Star Weekend in New Orleans 
I'm trying to think of 2012, maybe something like that. Yeah, not, not the not the last one, the one before that. And um, so he was injured, but he was voted in as a starter. And so the NBA made him come down and at least have a press conference um, to participate. And that was it. He basically like flew into the press conference and, and I think he took off. I don't even think he stuck around for the game. But just uh, him you know, sharing his thoughts on the league and where the game was going and just, you know, all the perspective that he had to offer at that point. To me, that was the most interesting part of the weekend, to tell you the truth. <laughs> just the chance to hear from Kobe Bryant. It was a great press conference. He was very relaxed. Yeah. And taking questions from around the world. Answering in and Italian and Spanish. <laughs> exactly. But that's how, even when he's injured, he was relevant. Even at, in retirement, he was relevant. So really, he's been on our on the scene for us since 1996. And he's produced compelling content through the retirement in 2016, 20 years in the NBA, and even afterward. And, and that's kind of what drove the, the, the death home and made it particularly poignant was that I don't think he'd been ever more relevant at any point in his retirement than he was this weekend with LeBron passing him, him doing a series of interviews in the buildup to that as, as LeBron surpassed him on this all-time scoring list. So he was so he was fresh in our minds, right? We we're just talking about him Saturday night, and then he passes away Sunday. I, Jay, I, I, I tried to explain it to somebody who's not, you know, particularly a sports fan, and she asked me, "Well, you know, what what was it about him?" And I said, "It's not that we were friends. We weren't friends. I, you know, we weren't close in any meaningful way. It's just that he's been part of my professional life for two decades." Yeah. You know, I mean, he's been a, a really important part of my life <laughs> professionally for the last 20 years, you know? And so you have to pay respect to that, you know? Yeah. I mean, you have to put that in some and sort of appreciative appreciate, context. Appreciate what he has meant for us, what he's meant for our careers. Yeah. Well, that's the same thing with, you know, with David Stern, the same thing. You know, there are people, there, there are a handful of people that have made – what we do so interesting to so many people that we've gotten to travel around the world doing it. And they, they never, they never hired us. You know, they never, we never worked for them, never yeah. worked with them, but they had tremendous impact on our careers through their, through their vision, through right. their abilities, through their cooperation. Right. Their, their, their all relative accessibility. Right. You know? Yeah. 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 It's just, I just, it's still hard. I was on, I was at in the gym this morning and I just had this, thing flashed through my head. I just was like, this, this maybe, maybe this isn't real. Maybe this didn't happen. Maybe it's possible that this didn't happen. I mean, even this four days out and I'm still thinking irrationally. It's just, I, I can't even describe, I can't even explain why I'm think continue to th think this way. But I think that speaks to the impact. Can we really feel his absence yet? Because, you know, for you and I, it, and just like for most of the people the last few years, he's been someone we see on television, right? So yeah. he hasn't been, I don't think I've actually seen him in person since the day of his last game. Right. So because for the last four years, he's been someone I've seen on television and because I've seen him on television and on various screens continuously yeah. this week. So there's at, at, right now there's no difference. Yeah, right. right. You know, I'm right. trying to think of when the difference will come for guys like, like us, even who had been around him. I don't know, maybe if I would have gone to the Hall of Fame weekend, you, you're probably going to go to the Hall of Fame weekend, you know, and, and him not to be there. Yeah. So it, I, I was thinking, like, like, remember when Johnny Carson died? For the younger folks, they might not have any idea what Johnny Carson meant, but he was a daily part of people's lives. Right. And then when he was done with, his, with the Tonight Show, he disappeared. He wasn't on the landscape at all. And so then when he actually died, it was weird because, like, in the way he'd, he'd already done, you know, it, his death didn't change anything for anybody. You weren't going to see him. You weren't going to talk to him the day before he died. You weren't going to see him. You weren't going to talk to him the day after he died. Like, in some ways, it didn't change. And in some ways, I think we don't feel, we don't accept Kobe's loss yet because he continues to be on our television screens. We, we see the highlights. He's on YouTube. Yeah. So how can we miss him if we still have him 
in that regard. Well, my friend, I appreciate I appreciate the, you taking more time than <laughs> than than uh, more time than we were going to take with you, and I appreciate you sticking around for a few extra minutes, man. Because it's been a busy week. Um, these are kind of my last thoughts for for the week. Um, you know, doing podcast with, with you, obviously. You know, folks don't know David was the first conversation I had on Sunday, and you know he called me and. I, the two people I talked to were, were David and Michael Wilbon, because, um, you know, we can all relate in a similar vein. You know, it, it's kind of all the same with us. And I'm not sure anybody else, you know, or too many other people could understand and view it in the way that we did. And so it was just really healing. Um, I appreciated you reaching out to me, David. I, I appreciate everyone. So many people reached out to me, people who barely knew me, but or since they barely knew me, but don't really know of my work and personal friends, but they don't, they don't care about what I have to say about the NBA, but they just understood that this was an important part of my, my professional career and, and how much time I'd spent around him in my life. And so they just wanted to make sure I was okay. Um, uh, final thought, just the community, you know, you, you see it in the thousands of people outside Staples center and gathering outside lower Marion high school. And, um, how people brought together that, that hashtag that started girl dad, that, girl that dad. Came after, yeah. after L Duncan's uh, ESPN report. And there's this hashtag and people are posting them pictures of themselves with their daughters. And that's something that has come out of this, that that's a, this instant community that has been formed. In Kobe. And, and so many, he, he brought as divisive as he could be, he brought so many people together. Maybe sometimes people were unifying against him, but he created communities. And we're seeing it even in death. He's creating these communities. And, and I've had some great connections with people. Some, some people have kind of come out of the blue a little bit. I haven't been in touch with for a while. And people have just reconnected over this, over this, this common loss, this communal sense that we're feeling. And I realized like, wow, Kobe, even in death, he's, he's, he's creating things, you know? And that, that, that's, that's a kind of cool aspect of this. Obviously there's nothing good about this. But um, it, it's, it's been heartwarming to see some of these, some of these new communities or some of these communities that have come together as a result of Kobe Bryant. Love you, man. And I'll uh, talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. Thank you.